Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. My name is Justin. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at Peninsula Grace. And what a sweet gift it is to come into our God's presence that we just sang about and to do that only in the blood of Jesus. Amen. It's good to open his word together. We're, we've been walking through the gospel of John uh, recently. And so I'd invite you to open your Bibles. Uh, we'll be in John chapter 4 and 5, uh, bouncing around in those two chapters this morning. So I would invite you to follow along in, in your edition. Uh, we got some physical copies out in the, in the foyer on the uh, bookshelf if you'd like to grab one of those. I wanted to start by considering um, this morning the, the fact that we believe what we want to believe and we do ultimately what we want to do. We believe what we want to believe, we do what we want to do. And, and because of that, we can, we can easily justify any action, any belief if we really want to do that action. So a couple of examples. Uh, let's say, hypothetically speaking, I want to eat a five-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids. And I do want to eat a five-pound bag of Sour Patch uh, But here, I can easily say, you know, I, actually, I need to eat that. Like, I'm sitting here on the couch, and I'm hungry. No, I'm starving. Right? And all the other food in the pantry, that's reserved for dinner. That Jill, you know, we're going to have that later, so I can't eat that. Like, this is really the only option to satisfy me. And, and some studies show it's actually healthy for me to eat this. Right? I mean, there, there's natural fruit flavoring in there, right? I'm basically eating grapes. Sour Patch Kids are gluten-free. They're dairy-free. They're vegan. Like... I've covered all my, in fact, I would be a fool not to eat this bag. It's in my own health's interest to devour this five-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids. So here we go, Garfield style, right? Maybe, maybe closer to home. Um, I saw this play out in my own life in a 20-year struggle and addiction to pornography. I wanted, I wanted the immediate gratification that it offered. So I was able to justify my actions, Right? It's not that bad. I could stop at any time if I wanted to. It's not actually hurting anybody else. Nobody else even knows. And I fooled myself, justified my actions, justified my beliefs about pornography so I could do what I wanted to do. James chapter 1 speaks to the foolishness, and not just foolishness, but the destruction of such a way. He said, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by what? His own evil desires, what he wants. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And James's plead with the church is, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Our sinful desires lead to sinful believing and sinful acting. And that has, he says, has massive consequences. Death. My, my addictive desires, my, my, my lust, and left unchecked, could have easily led to death. The downfall of me, and, and I was even a, a, dealing with this at the beginning of my leadership here at the church, it'd be the downfall of all of us. So it, and I thank my God that I started walking in victory in that before I got married. Because that could have easily been the death of our marriage as well. And guys, the reality is we do what we want to do. We, we see what we want to see. And so the question is, what do we want? What, what do we really want in life? 
And underneath of all of our actions and behavior lies our desire, our love, what we most value, what we most want. And so if we're going to see real change of thought, of attitude, of behavior in our lives, then our desires have to change. We've been studying the book of John here, his gospel, and uh, we saw at the end, we started at the end, and spoiler alerted, and said, here's what John is saying. Everything that he's writing in his gospel is all about. He said in John 20, 31, he said, these things, everything that I wrote here, every word that I wrote is toward this aim, that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says there's life available for us, but only through belief in Christ. And that's why we've been calling the series Belief in Christ for Life. And in today's text, as we're, we're going to see a central obstacle to the people that Jesus came to in their, in their believing who he was. And I think it gives us some vital insight for the obstacles in, in our life as well. John wants to, through the Holy Spirit, he wants to penetrate our motives. He wants to analyze our hearts and reveal the deepest, uh, the, the deepest causes of our unbelief, our own wayward will, our sinful desire that we love the wrong things. And so, Father, we're just asking that you would humbly open our eyes to see our own hearts. And that can be painful, Lord. But I also pray that through that honest examination of who we are, you would also give us an honest examination of who Jesus is. And that through him alone, you'll free us to life with you forever. In your son's name we pray. I want to look at the first thing. If you got, we got fill in the blanks in the bulletin if you want to follow along with us. I want to see the reaction of Jesus' people to his work. So, so far in the Gospel of John, we've seen the word of God become flesh. That God himself has wrapped himself in skin and walked around with his people. He begins revealing himself to his own, the Jewish people. And, and John is going to show us seven signs that point us to the Messiah in this Gospel. We've already seen one of them. He turned the water into wine. Today, uh, we're going to be going over the passage that looks at the next two, the healing of an official's dying son and the healing of a man who had been disabled, wasn't able to walk for 38 years. Now, we don't have time for this morning's text to get into the stories themselves, but we're going to see Jesus's, the, the people's reaction to what Jesus did and then his teaching according to their reaction. Because what we're going to see here, starting in John 5, is a shift. We saw in the prologue, it said, he came unto his own, the word became flesh, but his own didn't receive him. We're going to start to see the pushback of the, of the people against Jesus. When I was 18 years old, I was a freshman in college. Uh, I was dating a girl who was also 18. She had a very firm timeline for her life. Uh, she wanted to get married. She wanted to have like 16 kids. She wanted to move to the mission field, like all within a few months somehow. I don't know how you'd pull that off. But uh, what I realized over time, I started to get the feeling that, that there was a cardboard cutout of a groom, and I just happened to be the one poking my head through the face hole at the time. Um, that at one point, I even asked her, I said, as we were kind of on the fritz relationally, I said, do you want me, or do you just want to get married? And she couldn't look at me and give me an honest answer, which, of course, was an answer. And so my answer was, peace out, Girl Scout. She was, you could say it this way, she was welcoming me, but she was not honoring me. I fit her agenda, her timeline. I could serve her greater purposes, but she wasn't seeing me as a person, right? But Jill sees me as a person, don't you, babe? 
You love being married to a pastor. <laughs> and this seems to be what's going on with, uh, with Jesus and his fellow Jewish people. Look at their reaction to these two miracles. He heals these two people. And then in John 5, look with me in John 5, starting in verse 16. So therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they, you talk about majoring on the minors. Here he's healed somebody who couldn't walk for 38 years. And they say, but you did it on the wrong day. Somebody who was dying, and they said, yeah, but you did it on the Sabbath. And then look at Jesus' response, verse 17. He responded to them, my father is still working, and I am working also. So here's his rationale. He says, now, we know that God the Father commanded the Jewish people to keep the Sabbath day holy. That was the fourth commandment. So that is his heart. But these very rabbis that he would have been talking to, um, they taught that, yes, God rested on the seventh day. But we know that's not because God got tired. That was him finishing, completing, seating himself on the throne, finishing his foundation of creation. Yet God never ceases to work, right? He's upholding the universe. That our God never tires, never stops working. He's preserving all things, protecting all things. And so Jesus here audaciously claims that just like the Father never stops working, I never stop working. And in that statement, he's equating himself with God. And this is not lost on the Jewish people. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their standards, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Are they honoring Jesus? I would say an act of murder plot qualifies as dishonor, right? They welcomed his miracles. If he could fit into their agenda and the things they wanted to accomplish, then great, put your head in the cardboard cutout for the Messiah. But they were not honoring the person that he truly was. They weren't seeing who he really was. They were rejecting him, which is what Jesus calls them out for in his response. Look next at the reaction of Jesus' witnesses. The reaction of Jesus's, the, excuse me, the rejection of Jesus' witnesses. So I love a good courtroom drama. I love a good, a good movie that depicts this, Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. Or the psychological thriller, Legally Blonde. Um, one and two. Heard there's a third one coming out. What a cultural moment that will be. Uh, in, in John chapter 5, Jesus sets up his own courtroom drama. And he calls two witnesses to the stand. And then he indicts uh, his, his people. So first of all, he looks at these two witnesses. The first one, and, and in requirement, notice in, in verse 31, he says, If I testified about myself, my testimony is not true. According to Jewish law, you needed two or three witnesses in the court of law. So he says, I'm going to call to the stand two witnesses. And the first one he calls is John the Baptist. And of course, we've seen in the beginning of John, it said, why, why did the Baptist come? To witness to the light. To say, here's the Lamb of God. Here's somebody else than Jesus saying, this is the Messiah. But then he also says, not only John, the second witness was the Father and the, wit and the works that he gave me to do. Jump down to verse 36. He says, but I have an even greater testimony than John's because of the works the Father has given me to accomplish. So here Jesus is, is healing. He's, he's giving these signs and miracles and teachings to show from the Father, I am who I claim to be. But, he says, he indicts the Jewish leaders. He says, you have rejected these witnesses, in the words of Jack 
you can't handle the truth. Look at uh, these 11 verses, and I'm just going to, for time's sake, summarize the indictments that he gives uh, against the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in particular. You haven't heard God's voice. You haven't seen God's form. You don't have his word residing in you. You don't believe the one he sent. You are not willing to come to me. You have no love for God within you. You don't accept me. You don't see God's glory, and you don't believe Moses' words. He says, I rest my case, Your Honor. And Jesus couldn't have given a greater indictment to these people. They, they were God's chosen people. And here he's claiming, you don't love God, you're not obeying Moses' words. And there, the whole law was summarized. The greatest command was what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's saying, you're not doing that. Now, this was a people who knew God's word by heart. Like some of them literally had the entire Old Testament memorized. Think about that for a second. That's the long part, right? <laughs> I struggle memorizing my wife's phone number. You put it in there once, you know, and then you just, I love you, but again, I'm sorry that I'm a pastor. Um, but he says, you fail to understand the whole point of the thing that you memorized. Look at, look at verse 38. Jesus says, you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one that he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. He says, you have failed to let the written word of God lead you to the living word of God, me, right? To believe in me for life. They, they thought life was found in the writings and they thought that they would be accepted because of how hard they studied the word of God. But he says, this is the reality. We can be a sword drill all-star, right? You can find verses faster than anybody else. You could be in the Awana Hall of Fame, you could have the entire Bible memorized frontward and backward and, and, and destroy someone else's face in a theological debate. But what he says here is, man, there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about understanding what's written on these pages if you fail to discern the purpose of the pages. And so we ask ourselves... Like, honestly, before the Lord, do I think I'm good with God because of how well I understand the Bible? Or maybe for a lot of us, we actually think I'm not good before God because I don't understand this thing very well at all, right? But if that's the case, then ironically, I don't understand that word. Because if, if reading the Bible doesn't point me to Jesus for life, I'm still just as dead in my sin as the Pharisees were. Now, don't hear me wrong. Like, we need to know this thing rightly, you guys. But we come to know this thing rightly so that we can love him rightly. Don't stop short. But, but what's at the bottom of their failure to believe in Jesus for life? Why have they rejected him? Like, wouldn't, who doesn't want to receive life? Let's look at the reason for this rejection. Why, why are the Jews rejecting him? And, and give credit, uh, John Piper was really helpful in one of his sermons on this. But uh, look at verse 40. This is the answer. Jesus, Jesus says, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Or another translation said it this way, you do not want to come to me. 
What did we say earlier? Uh, we always, we believe what we want to believe and we do what we want to do. And he's saying here, you don't want me. You don't want to come to me. He's going to say in two chapters, and this is fascinating. Look at John 7. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Do you hear what he said? Here's how you're going to know if I'm from God or not. If you want to do his will. Those who really genuinely want to do the will of God will see that I'm here doing the will of God. This is a desire issue. Remember we said the root problem is not intellect. Like how many people would say, I know smoking is bad for me, but I want to do it. I will to do it even if this is my brain on drugs. Like we know that it's bad for us, but there's a deeper desire for what it gives us in the moment. And this is really helpful for me, because I don't know if you've ever thought, but like if we're honest, like, you know, man, if Jesus showed up today and he did all these miracles, like I'd believe him, right? Like if he turned water into wine and he's healing people in front of me, if I saw it, I'd believe it, right? But what would we see here in live action? That's not true. He's turning the water into wine. He's healing right in front of these people and they're still rejecting him. The root problem is our desire. And that's why he taught to Nicodemus, what you need, Nicodemus, is new life. You need to be born again. You need a new set of desires. You need a brand new will. And the Holy Spirit has to come into our life and, and to uproot our old, sinful, willful rebellion against God and replace it. And what is he supposed to replace it with? Because the question is, if the reason for their rejection of Jesus is they didn't want to come to him, well, that's the negative. What did they want? And that's where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 44. It says, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another and don't seek the glory that only comes from God? He says, you want, what is it that you want? You want the glory of man, not the glory of God. This is what's keeping them from believing Jesus. They want human praise. Now, this plays out differently with all of us personality-wise. Like, some of us want the spotlight. Those people, am I right? <laughs> Gosh. And some people, they want to hide in the corner, right? They don't want, like this creepy little guy, they don't want anybody to see them. Right? I know some of you. I see you hiding in the shadows after the service, waiting for your spouse to be quiet so you can go to the car. Right? <laughs> I'll find you out. But everyone, no matter how many people we want actually looking at us, like all of us want to be seen as right and good. All of us want our person validated before others. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 43. At the end of verse 43, he says, if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Now, do you hear what he just said? If there's someone that comes, another Messiah, some translations say, coming in his own name, that kind of a Messiah you would accept. He goes, you want a Messiah who comes in his own name. Now, what does that mean? Well, this kind of a Messiah would give them what they really wanted because this kind of a Messiah would be like them and endorse the way that they were. He said, ultimately, you want flattered. You don't want freed. Ultimately, you want reputation before other people, not a right relationship with God. You really want to be your own God. And this kind of a Messiah coming in their own name would validate your love for your own name, your self-exaltation, your pride. And Jesus could have easily received the, the glory that comes from other men. 
He'd do a few more magic tricks, zap some Roman bad guys, and man, the peasants would rejoice, right? Cardboard cutout Messiah, Jesus just put your head in there. But Jesus says, that's not me. Look at, look at how he contrasts how he comes in verse 43, the beginning of it. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you do not accept me. Is the true Messiah, and the true Messiah didn't come in his own name. The true Messiah came in the name of his Father. And this is what he teaches about himself. Look at, look at verse 30. He says up in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. And here's why it's just. Because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, the reason you can trust me, the reason you can trust my judgment, is because I'm not after my own will. I didn't come in my own name. I seek my Father's will, and I come in my Father's name. And this is what sets Jesus Christ apart from every other human who's ever walked the earth. The God-man himself. That Jesus only sought the glory of his Father, not his own glory and not from other people. And that's why he came humbly, obediently, unto death for our good and for the Father's glory. See, and here's what's happening, is the Jews see this path that Jesus is starting to walk down, and they don't like it. They don't like it one bit. Because if that's his path, that means that's my path too. Die to self? No, thank you. Deny my wants and suffer for the sake of others? No way. They desired approval and praise from other people. And what sounds like freedom is actually bondage. And Jesus said, I came to set you free. But remember, this isn't just an intellectual exercise. They needed the change of will. So how could they and how do we receive this kind of a desire transplant? We look to one place, and that is the relationship, the very relationship of the son with his father. This is our only hope. We back up to the beginning of Jesus' response to these Jewish leaders. Remember, they called him into question for claiming to be just like God. You're equating yourself with God. When he said that he is my father and I am the son, they knew what he was claiming, and he just doubles down on that in his response. And as he unpacks who he is, he says, the most important thing about me is my relationship to the father. And ten times in this passage, he refers to himself as the son, and he calls God his father or the father twelve times. And this is important. Because Jesus, he's showing how the Son is equal to the Father, but in that he's not claiming that there are two really powerful gods. What he's claiming is that they are actually one God, Father and Son. Look at, he, he speak, starts to speak to this in verse 19. Jesus replied, I truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So here he speaks to his relationship with his Father, and he speaks to it negatively and speaks to it positively. And to the negative, he says the Son can't do anything apart from his Father. Did you catch that? Look at the beginning of 19. The Son is not able, he's not able to do anything on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, like, that Jesus is, is like, a, like a 30-year-old living in his father's basement, completely independent, like dependent on his father, eating his father's cereal, driving his father's car, you know, like not getting a job. What, what he means is, man, I cannot, will not do anything that wasn't first from the Father. 
that I am subordinate to my Father. I'm dependent on my Father, and I'm in perfect unity with my Father. The Father initiates, and the Son responds. The Father says, jump. The Son says, how high? The Father sends, and the Son obeys. The Father commands, and the Son perfectly executes. The Father grants all authority to his Son, and the Son receives all authority from his Father the negative, he says, I, can only, I can't do anything that the Father hasn't first said to do, but to the positive, he says, only the Son could actually do all that the Father says to do. Look at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. He says, everything the Father does, I also do. Everything the Father wills, I also will. Jesus shows when I perfectly align with my Father's will, I perfectly trust my Father. And we sing that in the, in, the, in the ancient hymn, perfect submission, perfect delight. Well, it's not ancient, but it's old. Which actually makes him as great as the Father, equal with God. Because he's saying, whatever the Father does, I do that too, right? Now, how do you describe this kind of perfect, selfless unity between the Father and the Son? Jesus sums it up in one word. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. And shows him everything he's doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. He summarizes the relationship of the father and the son in one word. And that word is love. The father loves the son by fully inviting him into. Reveals everything that he has planned. And invites his son into that. And the son perfectly loves the father by perfectly obeying all the father has for him. And imperfectly revealing who the father is to those around him. And what a beautiful gospel truth for us, church, that our standing before the Father, our ability to see him, to hear from him, and know him doesn't rest in our perfect love relationship with him reciprocated, but in the Son's perfect relationship with the Father, love reciprocated. And what is the Son's task? If, if, if he does everything the Father says to do, well, what did the Father send the Son to do? And he speaks to that in verses 21 and 22. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, he says, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus says, here's the task. The Father gives the Son the authority and the ability to give, and what's the implication there? Withhold life. So the Father is the creator, right? So he's given all life. Everybody who has life has received it from the Father. Therefore, the creator is also the one that has authority over all life. And he says, I have handed those keys to the Son and said, drive. Now, why, why does he give this authority to the Son? Well, I love this. Look at verse 23. So that. Here's why I've given all authority for life to the Son. So that. All people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Son who sent, or does not honor the Father who sent him. So what is Jesus saying here? He says, to honor the Son is to honor the Father. And the Father he desires the on, for the Son to be honored. And the Son desires for the Father to be honored. We see this so beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. You remember, this, it says Jesus was obedient all the way down to the point of death so that he would ascend to life. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every, and every tongue would confess that he is Lord of all to the glory of the Father. 
The father says, man, I want everybody to see how amazing my son is. I want every knee to bow. I want every tongue to confess that Jesus, he's the Lord of life. And Jesus says, I want everyone to know when they see me and that I'm the Lord of life, I want them to give all the praise and glory to my father. They honor one another in perfect unity and love. And to whom, it said the son gives life to whoever he wants. Who does he want to give life to? Look at verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word, this is Jesus talking, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. Who does Jesus want to give life to? Who will he give life to? The one who believes that God sent him. And I love, notice the past tense here has passed from death to life. What a beautiful truth. If you believe that God sent the Son for us, we can, he has passed from death to life. Like there is life in Christ available for us today. Not just to come, right now. But wait, he says, just simply believe. Just believe. But didn't we say at the beginning, he he told them you can't believe because you, you want human praise? And, and not the praise of God? So, so how, do, how do we become those who receive life if, if we can't believe the right thing, want the right thing? How do we resolve this dilemma? Jesus said, I'm the only one that wants and does what the Father wants and does. This is why he said in verse 30, I can't do anything on my own. Like, I only seek my Father's will. And can you imagine saying that and actually meaning it and doing it? Like, take one day in my life and say, all day, I only want what the Father wants. That every time I see somebody else, I love them more than I love myself. That every moment, all I'm thinking about is how to love God in this moment and how for other people just to see how great my God is in that moment. I can't imagine doing that for like five full minutes. And we can't, what do we do about that? Because I can't change my own desires. Has anybody here ever tried to break a deeply ingrained habit by sheer willpower? (laughs) Me too. And it doesn't go well, does it? Which is why even just simply telling someone, believe more, have more faith, that even falls short. So what do we do? Lately, one of my favorite things has been watching Lucy try to dismantle one of these plastic cups. They are the bane of her existence. And when the lid is tightly on the cup, she can't get it off no matter how hard she tries. And she gets so mad. And she just, she starts throwing the cup and just like demon possession. She's like, whoa, what's going on here? And, and so she, she's not demon possessed. I, I got in trouble with that once before. I'm sorry. That's not a thing. I apologize. Uh, so just trying to avoid the emails. So her father, the, the, her, she comes to her father right? The giver of her life. And she, she's, I say, come here, sweetheart. I would love to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. With my giant dad muscles, I pop that plastic lid right off the cup every single time. And, and it is usually over a long period of time that we do that. I did for Lucy what she couldn't do for herself. And Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus came. He came to do what the law could not do, and that was to change our hearts, to give us new desires. Remember, that's the issue. We need new will. We need a new heart. We need new desires, And, and this is exactly what Romans 8 teaches into. Now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
Why? And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful natures, what we wanted. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for sins. He did this, why? So that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow the old nature, our old desires, but instead follow the spirit and newness of life. Now, What's he saying? Jesus was telling the Jewish leaders, you missed the entire point of Moses' law because Moses' law pointed to me. And the purpose of the law was to show us, hey, you're supposed to open this lid. That's God's will. You're supposed to want what he wants. But the law that could show us what we're supposed to do didn't give us the power to rip the lid off. And so we get as frustrated as Lucy. We try, we try, we can't do it. And the law showed us our need for somebody else to open the lid for us. Somebody else to want nothing but God's will on our behalf. But for someone to do that, they'd first have to have that kind of life in themselves, right? Which leaves us with only one solution. And he's the one talking in our story today. That Jesus, and, and this is the cool thing, not only does he serve as our perfect model, like he showed us what it means to only want God's will, but on top of that, like he came to give us his life. That he died for our wrong desire for human praise. But then he rose to new life to, to give us the new desire that only wants what our Father wants. And now, with the Holy Spirit in us, we can open the lid. Hallelujah. We can want what the Father wants. That Jesus' love for the Father becomes our love for the Father. That Jesus' submission to the Father in all things can become our submission to the Father in all things. That Jesus' delight in his Father can become today, brothers and sisters, our delight in the Father. I want to ask you this in closing. What have you been trying to do by sheer willpower that only Jesus can do? Paul says in Galatians 2, my old way, my old desires were crucified. I no longer live the old me, but Christ lives in me. Like, like now Christ and this new set of desires are inside of me, which means they can come out of me. But what does this look like tomorrow? Because, man, it's great if you, like, it, it's good to look at these truths on a Sunday, but if we don't walk them out Monday through Saturday, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I hope you liked this sermon, but if we don't put it into practice, it's meaningless, so what do we, what do, how do we walk in this? How do, we, how do we look to Jesus to do for us what we can't do by sheer, sheer willpower? Well, one of the central disciplines and practices that he's given us for that is prayer. That prayer is the language of faith. Jesus said in Matthew 7, here's the reason you don't have, because you're not asking. Here's the reason you can't open the lid. You're not giving it to daddy. Here's the reason. If he says, if you knock, I'll open. If you seek, you'll find. If you ask, you will receive. So we, we got to ask him for what we cannot do for ourselves. Just like Lucy had to come to me to open the lid. And Jesus, our perfect model, gave us a framework for, for what this looks like. He taught his disciples in Matthew 6. This is how you should pray. 
and listen to what we're asking for. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Like, right, that Jesus' desire was that only the Father would be praised. And so let's ask, Father, in this, I know my old desires for my praise, praise from others, but would you honor your name in this day? Your kingdom come, your reign, your rule, your, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Father, would what, what you want, not what, I know my default is to do what I want on earth as it is. I want what you want. Would you help me? Would you give us our daily bread? I can't want this, and I certainly can't do it if I don't first receive it from you. Would you forgive our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors? Lord, it's impossible to believe I'm forgiven and to forgive my neighbor, especially those who have deeply wronged me outside of the power of the Spirit in me. And would you not bring us into temptation? Because I see those things that my will bends its knee to over and over and over again. Father, would you free me from the evil one? Would you not let those temptations be captured and walked in by my evil desires? So I want us to, to pray this together as we close our time. If you'd stand with me. And here's, I would encourage you this week, this, is, this can be a practice. It can be a put Monday through Saturday. So I just say once a day, pray through this Lord's Prayer. And, and not robotically, but as you pray through it, pause on it. And, and, with the, and with the hopeful anticipation that what you are praying in that moment is promised to slowly over time become a reality in your life that the Holy Spirit will enable you to believe in Christ for life. So let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. And if you know it, and to yours, to, uh, I guess I don't know it. <laughs> or to him be the glory and the power. Wow, that was a powerful moment. <laughs> let's, let's sing to him. <laughs> don't, never, never a freewheel, Justin, never freewheel.